0: The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. And, you know, I like to keep it happy in the valley, and that, frankly, usually means non-political, nothing sociologically sensitive, but, you know... I need to make an exception today because I hear from so many of you about a particular kind of question, a lot about pronouns, pronouns here in America, pronouns all around the world. And you know, I can't get to the world, but I can venture some thoughts about what's going on here in these United States. And I want to zero in on a particular, perhaps challenging issue or at least challenging for many who I hear from and many people who I know. We are in a time of transition, and there's some people, there are some individuals, who, for example, wish to be referred to as they. Now, there are all sorts of answers that some people give to that wish, other than just granting the wish. And I want to address what some of these objections are, because I think there's something that we might come to realize, which is that pronouns, frankly, never, quote unquote, make sense in the way that a lot of us are supposing. Or a better way of putting it is probably that pronouns' meanings are always changing. They don't just stay the way they are. I've touched upon that in this show here and there, but we need to zero in on this new particular use of they. And in order to effectively zero in on it, we need to pull the camera back and look at our pronouns here in English with a historical perspective, because it's so easy to be presentist because, you know, we live in the present. We need to pay more attention to the present than anything. As one wise writer once said, it's okay to look at the past as long as you don't stare. But sometimes we need to stare a little bit to get a sense of why we're here and more to the point to understand how the here is going to get to the later. For example, you. It seems so innocent. Standard English, you use you for one person. You use you for two, three, or an infinity of people. But that's not the way English originally was. It used to be that we were a normal language. Highly unusual to have that you and you. When have you learned another language where you could use the same pronoun in the second person singular as you do in the second person plural, you know, in Hindi, for example. But usually, you're going to have different pronouns in those slots. But here we are in English, where the most proper kind of English uses you in the singular and you in the plural. But originally, the idea was that you used, of course, thou in the singular, and then you was in the plural, strictly ye, and then you was the other form. So, thou and you. Now, as it happened, you For reasons nobody completely understands, as in why that happened in English but not in other languages, you completely took over, and it knocked thou into being antique and essentially not being a real word in modern English. But, of course, there was a transitional time when you still had thou in current usage. The idea was that you used thou in an intimate way, but you could use you with one person, if you were trying to connote an official sort of, or even in between, just connoting something that was important, something that was beyond the realm of the intimate. So it starts there, and after a while, you just took over. But it's interesting to see the middle point, when we're still at a point where people think of thou as the main singular, but then are using you to refer to one person in certain contexts. In other words, they were allowing pronouns to change. So, for example, here is someone in 1624 writing a very dear letter. It's a woman named Catherine Paston, and she's writing to her son. And she says, My good child, the Lord bless thee evermore in thy goings out and thy comings in. I was very glad to hear by your first letter that you were so safely arrived at your wished port. So, When she's talking about those external issues, letters and ports, well, then she goes into the you. And remember, this is her son. She's not talking to a king. Arrived at your wished port, but more glad to read thy loving promises, thy loving promises, which I hope shall always redound to thy chiefliest good. She's a good parent. I wish that you would settle yourself to certain hours' tasks every day you rise. So once she's giving these commands, it's back to the you. This I thought good to put thee in mind of, believing thou wilt do this for my sake, but more chiefly for thine own. Farewell, my sweet will. For this time, by thy loving Mother Catherine, remember my good respect to your worthy master. Your worthy master, once you kind of look up and outward that way. So, these are people who are undergoing a change. Used to be that if you're talking to one person, it's thou. Now here, people are using you to refer to one person somewhat. But as you can imagine, there were people at the time who just didn't like that because that's not the way it's supposed to go. So for example, here is George Fox. It's 1660. And he's going to use a word accidents. And when he says accidents, he means grammar in the old-fashioned sense that we mean. He means how you use your cases, how you use your concord, how you use your endings. And he's just snorting. Is he not a novice and unmannerly and an idiot and a fool? He spelled it I-D-E-O-T. So, and an idiot and a fool that speaks you to one, which is not to be spoken to a singular, but to many. Oh, vulgar professors and teachers that speak plural when they should singular. Come, you priests and professors, have you not learnt your accidents? So that's George Fox. In other words, he didn't like it because it doesn't, quote unquote, make sense. But now here we are. And we use you in the singular, and we use you in the plural. And it's interesting, something that I don't talk about much in any form. I technically, I think it would be on the books, wherever those books are, I'm technically a Quaker since I was a teenager. My mother one day just waved a magic wand and said, we are Quakers now. So I grew up with a lot of devotions and going to meeting, went to friend select school in Philadelphia. And when I was there in the 70s and early 80s, there were still teachers who in the Quaker tradition were still using the thou forms. Although actually talk about language change, they were using the for both subject and object. That was typical of Quakers. And then they would use thy. So I have experienced actual living, breathing people with smells and attitudes and appetites using the old fashioned forms. I remember Teacher Larry would come up behind you and he'd say, make sure to put thy name on thy paper. And he wasn't being cute. He wasn't trying to sound like he was in 1776 or something. Make sure to put thy name on thy paper. I remember how he smelled. For some reason, he quit and he got in a boat and he floated away. That's the last I ever heard of him. But he really did use thy. George Fox was a Quaker. And there was a wonderful song, I must admit it's one of my fondest memories of my Quaker days, that was about George Fox. And since it's about time we heard some music, we're going to listen to the Fox song, which is always, In My Head, Walking in the Glory of the Light, said Fox. And actually, the person singing this is... A guy with a man bun. He actually is in exactly the part of Philadelphia that I grew up in, so I thought we'd use him. So here he is playing the guitar. This is exactly the sort of person who, in 70s Quaker culture, you probably heard doing this song if it wasn't during a service. Here it goes.
1: There's a light that is shining in the heart of a man. It's the light that was shining when the world. There's a light that is shining in the Turk and the Jew. There's a light that is shining, friend, in me and in you. Walk in the light, wherever you may be. Walk in the light, wherever you may be. With my old leather breeches and my shaggy, shaggy locks, I am walking in the glory of the light, said Fox. There's a book, and a steeple, and a bell, and a key, and they'll bind you forever, but they can't, said he. For the book, it will perish, and the steeple will fall, and the light will be shining at the end of it all. Walk in the light, wherever you may be. Walk in the light, wherever you may be. With my old leather britches and my shaggy, shaggy locks, I am walking.
0: Tell me that isn't a catchy song. Walk in the light, wherever you may be. So, the you changed, and there are people who didn't like it. They're dead. We're not. Now, to pull the camera in a little more, let's talk about they and things about it that can seem odd. For a long time, many of us have been accepting more and more the use of they in the singular in a more generic, non-specific sense. If the student comes before I get there, they can slip their test under my office door. Some of you cringe, a lot of you don't. And especially these days, many see it as a graceful solution, given that there are people who don't wish to be called he or she, or there are times when we don't wish to specify whether there is a he or a she involved, that you can use they, because they is gender neutral. Now, it's easy to say, well, no, that's no good because they is plural. As if we're talking about the composition of each of the elements. They is plural, but you know, people who speak English have not thought that way, really, frankly, ever in terms of any English that we would recognize. We can go way back to the fourteen hundreds, you know, really, you know, high Middle English, and in the Sir Amadeus story, you can actually see something like "each man in their degree, each a man in their degree," to use the proper voice for English speakers at that time. So, each man in their degree, way back then. They was being used for singular. And to our knowledge, nobody was saying, thou shalt not say so, because they is plural. Nobody said that. Basically, people were allowed to talk the way they wanted to. Or Mr. Shakespeare. If you're going through the works of the bard, he does not treat they as always plural. Comedy of errors, for example. There's not a man I meet, but doth salute me, as I were their well-acquainted friend. That's Bill Shakespeare. And remember, we're supposed to kind of suck inward and look off into the sky when we talk about Shakespeare, and we should. But that's something that he did, and he's considered a genius with the language. That actually is Antiphilus of Syracuse. And, of course, sometimes Antiphilus of Syracuse can sing a song, which he did in the musical Boys from Syracuse of 1938. And I thought it was time to play my favorite song from that. This is called Dear Old Syracuse. Just try not to tap your foot. Well, most of you, although, of course, some of you are holdouts.
2: You can keep your Athens. You can keep your Rome. I'm a hometown fella and I pine for home. I want to go back,
0: go back
2: to dear old Syracuse. I've worn out sandals and my funds are low. There's a light that's burning in the patio. I want to go back, go back to dear old Syracuse. It is no metropolis. It has no big acropolis. And yet there is a quorum of cuties in the forum. Though the boys wear tunics that are out of style, they will always greet me with a friendly smile. I want to go
0: back, go back to dear old
2: Syracuse.
0: You know who originally sang that in 1938? Because believe it or not, that was not a recording from 1938. Originally, that was Eddie Albert. And so that is the lead from... Green Acres, and he started out on the stage, and originally, that was him doing it. Later, in Vanity Fair, Thackeray has somebody saying, a person can't help their birth. person can't help their birth, and that's considered perfectly ordinary. And so, where do we get this idea that they is plural? Just like we know that if you mix red and blue, you're going to get purple. To tell you the truth, oddly enough, the person who didn't like that and instead taught us that he was a proper generic, was not a man. It was an Anne. Anne Fisher, in 1745, laid that down in a very tart text. It's fun to read her, but she was the one who decided that if you say he, then that can take care of these sorts of things. And so tell each student that he can hand in their paper, even if some of the students are women. And Anne Fisher's book happened to catch on, and that really is pretty much why... Any of us would now think that using they that way is wrong and that instead we should probably use he or the awkward alternative of always toggling between he and she and you have to tot up how many times you've used which. I mean, all of that is very artificial given that language is supposed to be spontaneous, especially when spoken as opposed to written. And, you know… In recent years, I think that the dam has begun to burst on the kind of singular they that I'm talking about because I think more and more people are realizing that we need it we really need it. That just saying he is barbaric, just saying she will not be fair after a while, saying he slash she is ugly and stupid, and toggling between he and she is clumsy. We already have something. It was something that people who've used English were doing forever. Why not just do it? And so it's they. Now, a lot of you are asking me to lay down some sort of pronouncement about how we're going to deal with changing gender norms in other languages. And you know, it's not my place. I can't tell you what Spanish speakers need to do with Latin X, etc. It's not my culture. It's not my language. They're things that one really needs to know. I think you should speak the language, probably. You should be sensitive to the cultural contours. Same thing with Hebrew, for some reason. Well, I guess the reason partly would be that everybody can listen to this and realize that I like Hebrew a lot. People ask me, what should be done about this in Israel? You know, I've never been to Israel. I don't think anybody there has any reason to care about my advice. There are other people who could do it better than me. But when it comes to English, I feel like I have at least a little bit of throwdown. And I think that the singular they is becoming more okay and it should, but here is where the challenge comes in. What about a new kind of singular they, where we're talking about a specified person? For example, one might have something like, um, let me grab a name, Jocelyn. Because nobody seems to like the name Jocelyn, but me. Always one of my favorites. I love saying it. I say it and I feel like I have an apricot in my mouth. But people always say, "Oh no, I don't really like Jocelyn. Well, Jocelyn. So I'm going to use it. Jocelyn isn't feeling well today and they want to stay home and get their work done. Now, some of you are going to think that's a very odd sounding sentence. But actually, for increasing numbers of young people now, it isn't. Jocelyn said that they really couldn't see why the teacher treated them that way. And it's Jocelyn referring to the teacher treating Jocelyn that way. Yes, this is, for those of you who haven't heard it, a thing. And it's challenging. A person, if they say that they wish to be referred to as they, what they mean is that you're supposed to use sentences of that kind. I have spoken to various people about this and tried to read up on it over the past couple years, and there's some people who just say, and they tend to be of a certain age. Um, I'm not going to admit that I'm at it, so let's just say a good generation ahead of me, and they'll just say, mm, "I'm just not doing that." No, and you know they have different reasons for it but they tend to center around the idea that no they is supposed to be plural or for people who are looking at it in a little more detail they'll say well okay singular they is okay if it's generic like tell each student that they etc etc but if we're talking about a specific person it just doesn't sound right to me it isn't right and no they just need to pick something and deal with life as it is or something like that and of course there are all sorts of other things behind people's resistance to using the pronoun in that way but When you really do whittle it down to just the linguistic aspect, I think we can admit that is a difficult change for a lot of us to make. If you grow up with it, okay. But if you have spent a lifetime, say probably about three decades lifetime or more, using they in a certain way, even if you've been saying, as you almost certainly have when you aren't monitoring yourself, tell each student that they, to say something along the lines of, Brian is pretty sure that they can get an A and referring to Brian getting the A, it's probably one of the most striking and definite linguistic challenges that has come along in your lifetime with the language. The first experience I had with it, I really did have to metaphorically kind of keep slapping my ear to understand what was meant. And I thought, oh, wow, this really is new. I had read about it, but I hadn't actually been exposed to it till then. And then not terribly long ago, somebody asked to be called they. And I said, okay. but this time it was a very live conversation and I had to actually perform this new usage. And I just fucked it up all over the place. It was very, very difficult. I was embarrassed and I started trying to think of ways to avoid using any pronouns at all. And of course, that didn't work and there was liquor involved and so on. So, yes, these things are challenging. But you know what? I think We need to rise to the challenge. And one reason that we need to rise to the challenge is because we're dealing with change, which we value in so many ways. You know, let's go back to 1938 again to the film Alexander's Ragtime Band, where Ethel Merman, one of my favorite singers, sang a song called Marching Along with Time that nobody seems to care about but me. This is the peach jello of old songs. Here's Ethel. It makes the hairs on the back of my neck, which don't really exist, stand up on end.
3: This world of ours is ever-changing. The hand of time keeps rearranging. With every change, I'm right on the beat. Won't let the grass grow under my feet. I'm marching along with time, I'll be marching. change my horse for a motor and now of course I'll be changing my car for a plane to fly you know that time marches on and so do I there'll be a change in music a change in rhythm a change in dancing but I'll be right with them watch me and you will find that I just won't be left
0: She was good. I mean, if you remember her on variety shows back in the late 70s and in the 80s when she was kind of losing it. Yeah, I know. But when she was in her prime, that voice, it just, it sounds to me like peach jello. It's just, it hits me for some reason. I'm not. Well, anyway, part of it is because it's where things are going. As in, young people do it quite spontaneously. It can be a dream to listen to. It really is interesting. And it reminds me that this is something we can do, partly because if you've grown up using they in this new way, you have no trouble with it at all. I have listened to people do it once quite recently. And well, if they can do it, it shows that it's not beyond human capacity. It just might take some of us a little longer than others. You know why else we can do it? And we're going to have to return to something I've hit on this show before, but this is something that needs to be hit upon more than once. And that is that All of us use an extremely artificial construction involving pronouns all the time and we're proud of ourselves for it and we get good enough at it that we forget that it takes effort. And that is the idea that you have to say, Billy and I went to the store rather than Billy and me went to the store. That rule is fake. It's just something somebody made up. It is one of the two fake rules that were promulgated by pre-penicillin people without enough to do that have actually settled into ordinary Anglophone behavior. One of them is the idea that you have to say Billy and I went to the store or Billy and he went to the store instead of Billy and him went to the store. And the other one is that in America, you have to say I've gotten lost instead of I've got lost. If you go over across the pond, one of the subtler things that somebody might say, I've got lost, but We say I've gotten lost, and that's because some people in the 1800s decided that it was wrong to say I've got lost. What was wrong with it? Nothing. Well, here we are. But the whole Billy and I thing is just something somebody made up. It doesn't really make sense. And so, yeah, I know that a lot of you are saying, well, I is for the subject and me is for the object. And you wouldn't say me went to the store. And so you have to say Billy and I went to the store. But okay, you broke a lamp and somebody asked, well, who did it? Now, Do you say I? No. If you say I, everybody's going to look at you funny and break another lamp over your head. Who did it? Me. That's what you say. Well, would you say me broke the lamp? Of course not. But who did it? Me. Tell me that what you're saying is short for it was me. And I ask you two questions. One, why'd you shorten it? Why do you shorten it every single time? Why don't you say it was me? You know, why, why were you in such a hurry? And more to the point, okay, it was me. Is me in that one? a subject, because what happened? Why don't you say, it was I? Once again, you know, you're, you're going to be assaulted. Or when you knock at the door, you know, who's there? It is I. No, let's face it, you're not going to say it because it doesn't sound like a real person. It's me. Okay, so me, it's supposed to be the object only, and I is the subject. So Tom and I went to the store. Okay, let's reverse them. I and Tom went to the store. Well, why not? You're going to say, well, you don't want to put yourself before. and okay. Well, that's manners. All right. But suppose you did. I and Tom went to the store. You sound like a Martian or you sound like a very talented person who learned the language about two months ago. If I is always the subject, then why don't you ever want to say I and Tom went to the store? The reason is that the idea that I is subject and me is object, that's just something somebody made up because that's the way Latin works. English has a whole different rule, which is roughly that when you have your first person singular right near the verb, you use I. And if you have an adverb in there, so I honestly wanted, then you use I. Otherwise, it's me even when it's a subject. And in my experience, when I say that, people don't like it. They Imagine that I must be wrong, just shaking the head. But what about le Francais? What about French? Because French thinks it's perfect, you know, and that which isn't clear isn't French, etc., etc. And yet, even if you don't know much French, you know, Billy, let's call him Guillaume, and went to the store, some aleo magasin. Okay, so Guillaume a who goes to the store? Guillaume a boop. Sommes allés au magasin. What would you put in? Even if you don't have good French, you know that it's moi. It's not je. Guillaume et je sommes allés au magasin. You know that's not it. It's moi. That's the only way that they do it. And moi is me. You don't always know it when you listen to songs in old movies like The French Lesson from the good news movie made at MGM in 1947 with Peter Lawford and June Allison. But listen to this.
2: The book. Le livre. Le livre. The book. The pen, la plume, la plume, the pen, la chaise, la chaise, le crayon, le crayon, le cahier, le cahier, le papier, le papier, noir, rouge, blanc, a black, red, white, rouge, blanc, noir, you're fairly bright, now please go back, I bet I get them right,
0: Now listen a little more closely to this little part where Peter Lawford does the pronouns.
2: The pronouns that you need are je and vous. Je means me, and vous means you. Now do them all. Just watch me plow right
0: through. So he says je means me. But no, no, it's not je means me. Je means I, moi is one way that you say me. But the French say, Guillaume and me went to the store and they think of themselves as basically speaking some French kind of Shakespeare. Well, if they can do it, why can't we? Why is it right in French and not in English? Is there a reason? And you say, there's really no reason. And Shakespeare, again, he didn't observe our rules about I and me. Suppose you're at the Merchant of Venice, And Antonio says, sweet Bassanio, all debts are cleared between you and I, if I might but see you at your death. That's Billy Shakespeare. He did it. If you're supposed to always use I as a subject and me as an object, if that's really the rule, how come it has to be taught? Have you noticed that with all the other very basic things in the language, nobody has to teach you. Have you ever seen a kid walking around saying, oh, look, there's a doggy big. There's a doggy big. And then the mother bops him on the head and says, no, you must put your adjectives before your nouns. Nobody has to be told that. It's just you listen to people using the language and there you go. Why is it that there's this little thing about I and me and he and him, this thing about pronouns where you have to be taught? Now, I remember one time I mentioned this to a crowd. This guy still has me a little scared. And there's this guy, yeah, actually a very reserved, educated guy, who was looking at me as if I was making a serious plan to have children turned into slurry in order to feed the poor or something like that. Just this cold, hard stare. He was looking at me like I was Herbert Hoover or something. And finally, he raises his hand and he said, my child grew up saying it. My child came out of his mother's uterus saying Billy and I. He didn't say that last thing, but he was just livid. You know, if any of you have children who really did grow up saying Billy and I, I believe you, but your children are in a vastly small group. They are the minority. And most of us know that you have to teach people just like we had to be taught to say, Billy and I, when really language, the basics of language, something like that, that's really just the gut bucket skeleton of how the grammar works. It's supposed to come naturally. It's the sort of thing that comes as naturally as singing a song. who that was? That was the DeMarco sisters. And I'm playing that because I have had exactly that number in my head. That was from Annie Get Your Gun in 1946 for over 40 years. My father was an old radio fan and he used to play the local NPR station in Philadelphia playing their radio shows. And I remember when I was In my early teen years, walking into the room and hearing that episode of the Fred Allen show and hearing them sing that song, I didn't know a show tune from my elbow. That happened to me in college. I just knew that I really liked that song and the way the DeMarco sisters sang it. Hadn't heard it for a very long time, and I decided that I wanted to share it with you for this show. I remember hearing exactly that number and thinking, this is almost as good as Earth, Wind, and Fire. So anyway, let's get back to the new oh my God, this is a new way of using they and it's too hard for me, kind of they. Still, there's just going to be, it doesn't make sense. It's not right because they is plural and using it generically is one thing. But if you're talking about somebody talking about themselves and they want to be referred to as they, well, it just, it doesn't make sense. Well, you know, pronouns just don't. Remember, singular you didn't make sense. South America, the Jarawara language. There are no pronouns in the third person at all, except in the plural and only if things are animate. So there's no word for he, no word for she, no word for it. And the only time you call something they is if it's birds or jaguars or people. If it's sticks or rocks, nothing. Just to say something like they're on the ground, you say are on the ground. If you want to say she's waiting for you, you say waiting for you. There's no pronouns in the third person at all. Those people have been getting along just fine since the dawn of time. There's a language in Papua New Guinea called Beric. And for them, not only do they have just you and you in both singular and plural, but they have one word that means he, she, it, and they. They only make the singular plural distinction with I and we and they are. Doing just fine. remember that time you learned a little Italian because you liked that boy or you liked that girl? I remember that very well. What was her name? Bernadette? Yes, that's right. Well, when you learned it, remember that word lay? that's not a great choice of words, but nevertheless remember lay and it meant she but also the formal you. <laughs> What's up with that? But they seem to get along with it. Remember German? Maybe you don't, but Z means she. It's the formal you, and it means they. And Germans are, you know, doing just fine. You know, there used to be two Germanys they're doing so fine. And so there's really no problem with pronouns not making sense because they tend not to. I think we can learn new sense. Ethel Merman, again, teaches us that.
3: One day, oh, one day I-
0: I love it when she holds that long note like that. That drives me crazy. Well, kitties, it's the end of the show. And so I guess it's time for you to go to bed. Here's that song that we use for the end of the show. And so it's time for you guys to not. Listen, I'm glad that you enjoyed this week's Lexicon Valley, kitties. And so sleep well. I hope you had some snack pack or something tonight or peach jello. So goodbye to the children. Night. Okay, grown ups. are you still here? All right. We have to clear a little something up. Remember when I asked the hive mind about that joke about the parrot? I really was serious about that. The parrot who says, swim, motherfucker, swim, what was the joke? One of the best things about doing this show is that you actually get answers for things like this. And folks, this is the joke about the parrot. So a guy buys a parrot because he wants the parrot to talk. And he has a party, and he's thinking that the parrot is going to talk to everybody. But the parrot just kind of sits there like that frog in the cartoon. It never talks. And he keeps on saying, talk, motherfucker, talk talk, motherfucker, talk. But at the whole party, the parrot never talks. So then where he works, they have a talent show. And he figures that he's had the parrot pretty long at this point, And so now maybe the parrot will talk. And so when he goes up there, when it's his turn, he's waiting for the parrot to talk. So everybody will have a good time. And the parrot just sits there looking at everybody. And he says, talk, motherfucker, talk. And the parrot just sits there. Talk, motherfucker, talk. And nothing happens. Now, as it happens, he's also something of a yachtsman. And he has this vision that he's going to be, on his yacht with all of his friends, and if he hangs out with this parrot enough, then he can be one of those people with a parrot on his shoulder out on the high seas talking, and so there he is out there, and the parrot just sits there on his shoulder, but never has anything to say, and he says, come on, talk, motherfucker, talk, but he doesn't. Then there's a lightning bolt, and a giant squid comes, and it pulls the yacht down. All the other people are swimming to the shore, but this guy, it turns out that even though he's a man of a certain means, and apparently he kind of likes birds, he can't swim, and so he's flailing in the water, and he doesn't know what he's going to do, and the parrot flies up over his head and says, swim, motherfuckers, swim. Ah. <laughs> so that's the joke. That is what we were laughing at so much. Just to show you that the Ethels that I like are not always ones who sound like <laughs> Ethel Merman, another Ethel who I love just as much as Ethel Waters, and this song has nothing to do with anything. In this episode, I'm just gonna play it because I like it. We're in nineteen twenty-nine and she's singing Birmingham Bertha. This was originally from a very early talkie musical called On With the Show, which was distinctive in that it was in Technicolor. And it's interesting how these things struck people at the time. A yellow taxicab drove past in an early scene, and that was so striking and beautiful to all audience members then, that people would regularly break out into applause just at seeing the yellow. But to us, these days, a more interesting part of the film, especially since no color print survives, is Ethel Waters singing Birmingham Bertha. And this is just one of her best ones. Here it goes.
2: All night long I've rode that train in a native coach from Birmingham. Just to find my loving Sam I can get him off my brain And beyond the least question of doubt My aim is to find and straighten him out Because nobody's fooling Birmingham Bertha She's had school in Birmingham Bertha Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth's my plan do Just treat me fair, and I'm on the level Try and give me air, and I'm just a she-devil He's on my mind, so I intend to find that man But at that, I'm just the worst
0: you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. At this point, it's become customary for me to stick some little witticism or an attempt at one in. But you know, I've had such a long week and got so little sleep last night that I can't think of anything. And so let's just move on to. The show was edited, as always, by Mike Volo. And I, exhausted, am John McWhorter. So see how that works? And so, I am John McWhorter, when it's right next to the verb, you wouldn't say me am John McWhorter. And you can stick a little adverb in there. So I, exhausted, am John McWhorter. But still... The person who is doing this outro and making things up as he goes along is me. It is not I. It's me. Just me.
2: Like the police, I never release my man.